The following is a Kingfisher Media production. You are listening to When the Bell Breaks podcast. This is your host, Alexis Erlin. Today I am with Alexander Demray. Oh wait a minute, is this for this is this? Let's see here. Hold on, this is going to be funny for our listeners. Really quick, I don't even want to edit this out because we have more than one show we're working on, and now I'm almost forgetting what show this is for. So this is really funny. Um, is this for WTBB or is this for What I Like About You podcast? <laughs> this is this is when the bell breaks. That's what I thought, just checking. So I'm going to plug that right away, just, you know, in case I forget later. So anyway, this is when the bow breaks today. Um, <laughs> that was a really, really funny fluke. Uh, my apologies. But anyway, yes, this is when the bow breaks. And the reason why I got confused is because Alexander Damre is also guesting on What I Like About You podcast. So that is really the genuine reason why I got confused. So without further ado, Alexander Demre, will you please say hello to our listeners and give us a little bit of a brief bio about yourself so we kind of get to know like what you're all about? Okay. Well, it's very nice to talk to you guys. My name's Alexander. So I just wanted to start with just a really quick little disclaimer for myself. So uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a guy in an undergraduate study and I'm trying to become a counselor. If you're feeling, you know, not safe, you need some help, you live in the Fraser Valley region, you know, at any time you can feel free to contact me via Facebook uh, at Alexander Demare, which is spelled D-E-S-M-A-R-A-I-S, or you can contact me directly at my work email, which is videomaker at live.ca. Sounds um, good. Yeah. So I just wanted to reach out to anybody who might be listening to this podcast and, and you know, might be hurting and, and you know, wants a, a stranger to talk to. Right. Sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger than someone we know, eh? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so why don't you give me a little bit of a background about yourself? You have a really, really interesting story and I've kept in the dark about your story on purpose. I know AC is, is uh, you guys know each other and, um, so he's refrained from giving me too much information because <laughs> I really like to experience this for the first time on the show along with our listeners. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, um, so I grew up in foster care with a pretty, pretty unique situation as far as, you know, interactions go with the Canadian protective child protective agency. Mm -hmm. I was, a, I was later adopted by my aunt and uncle my great aunt and uncle, actually, with my two older twin brothers, um, along with a plethora of other children. Um, I believe at this time, though I haven't met all of them, I have seven brothers and two sisters. So quite the quite the family. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know most of them because some of them came after I did. But uh, at the time, I had three brothers and one sister when I was first adopted um, mm -hmm. and uh, I moved out very young, you know, I became a, I became a, an adult at 15, got okay. my first, first job at 15. You know, I went and uh, I got to meet my biological parents, which is just a whole nightmare all on its own. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I ended up living <laughs> with them for a short period of time, uh, you know, during my, my transition into 
being a functioning member of society. Uh-huh. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I transferred off into, into the working world and I've, I've been there ever since. So, so 15, I remember being 15, right? I'm just <laughs> going to go back a little bit. I also have a 15 year old. Mm-hmm. It's crazy for me to think of her being in and out of foster care and then all of a sudden being on completely on her own at 15 and having a job and supporting herself. Yeah. Did you feel prepared for that? Oh, oh no, 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 (laughs) not even a little bit. Okay. Um, Okay. I'm still not prepared. Right. I still feel like like that too. (laughs) I still feel like that too at 38, especially during a pandemic, no one's prepared. Oh yeah. Decades later. And I'm still like, God, why does this keep happening? Right. Right. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I just want to tell my kids, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's all going to get worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. you do isn't going to matter in 20 years, but I know that's not entirely true. Life teaches us a lot and it's taught you a lot. So you're 15 and you're taking care of yourself now. So then what happens? <laughs> oh God. Okay. Well, I'll give you a little pre, like an excerpt as to what led up to that. So most kids who grow up in the foster care system, even after adoption, you know, their resources are limited They're They've been, you know, excommunicated from their families. They, they don't have any of those sort of like aunts and uncles and, you know, people that they can turn to. And, and you know, all of a sudden we find ourselves no longer in the care of the government. And, and we know what the government bureaucracy is like. They're just like, oh, you're this age. We're done with you. Sorry. Have a nice day no more communication. So like, right. Lack of funding or whatever. Absolutely. Even just support in general, like there's there's no information. So, you know, I'm 15 years old and, and my grades are everything to me. Um, so growing up having limited social interaction with other people, I was sort of this arrogant know-it-all teenager like you know like many teenagers are but I think normal yeah like normal but maybe to an excessive extent so you know someone would say something silly to me like something you know that might not make sense or you know might not be based in fact that I would consider to be common knowledge and I would just Mm -hmm. be so facetious with them I you know these people would say something and I would just turn around and be like good lord you should just kill yourself like you're you're so dumb you should just kill yourself get away from me right now so I grew up alienating myself from people around me because I had this superiority complex because, you know, it, truth be told, I was a fairly intelligent young person. Um, Mm -hmm. and my grades reflected that. So I worked very, very hard in school. Um, Mm -hmm. but I did not have the, uh, you know, the financial resources or the understanding of, you know, the greater understanding of how life worked. So I had no idea, you know, what, what getting a job was going to be like, what supporting myself was going to be like, you know, I'm thinking, Oh yeah. And you're practically still going through puberty at that time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And also at that time, I think minimum wage was like $7 and 50 cents an hour. So, you know, I'm sitting there on my, on my calculator going, okay, so if I work exactly this many hours, I will make this much money. If rent costs about this much, I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. You're thinking, Oh, that'll be enough. Yeah, it all this is totally feasible and it's absolutely not, like not even yeah. a little bit. Right. So uh my my dad, who was in his sixties, my adoptive dad, I should I should specify that mm-hmm. my adoptive father, he was in his sixties when we were adopted and getting pretty close to his seventies when I left. I wasn't there for a incredibly long period of time, though it was it, it felt like it. it was quite a few years. He had a problem with 
using verbal violence to kind of confer to Ah. you that, that, you know, you couldn't step outside of his boundary. He wasn't a big man. He was, you know, he maybe came up to my shoulder and he was just a pot belly little French dude. And, you know, he had broken his back uh, in a work injury as a heavy duty mechanic many, many like years, like decades before I was even born. So he was partially crippled, but the guy would not hesitate to pick you up and put a hole in his own drywall with your head. If, you know, you were going outside of his norms, you know, and it was very rare for him to be physically violent like that, though, on occasion, it did happen. The last time it was enough to know that it did that it was going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. He would threaten it more than it would happen. And like, you know, you would just know that he could get to that level of violence just with his actions. You know, you you didn't even have he didn't have to do it. You just you just knew that if you stepped out of line you know, you're getting, you're getting something not so nice. Right. So the last time we ever really spoke, my, my adoptive sister who was pretty new to the family and she had some like serious trauma as far as like sexual abuse went and, you know, being in a very Roman Catholic family, like, you know, also with your story, like they just, they thought that counselors were just absolute quacks. They were just like, you don't need a counselor. Counselors are stupid and mental health is a myth. Um, right. You don't, you don't, you don't need any of those things. So she had these problems uh, with sexuality. And now all of a sudden she's in a house full of, uh, you know, legally related, but blood unrelated teenage to adult men. And, Mm. you know, this was, this was exciting for her. She was like, Oh, all these boys around. And, you know, she behaved very inappropriately and none of us ever behaved inappropriately with her, but, you know, she would make these comments and write these stories about us and, and, you know, in her journal. And some of them were just like, absolutely profane and right. you know, in the in the hands of the wrong person even though because she was just pubescent at the time you know the the ridiculousness of it because of her lack of experience no regular adult would have believed the things that she was saying because they just didn't happen in real life right but, you know had they fallen into the the hands of of someone you know in the school system or another parent i mean there could have been real issues so my parents were sure. really hard on her but they would just, you know, like call her a slut and tell her that, you know, she needs to go into her room and, and, you know, make right with God. And, oh, yeah, it was just brutal. But one day she came downstairs to tell me that dinner was ready and uh, I was on my computer in my room and she just busted into my room and she's just, Tristan, dinner's ready. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll, uh, you know, just give me a minute. And hey, can, you know, can you knock next time? You know, I'm a teenage boy. What do you think? Like, I'm on my computer. You know, right. my parents had software installed on my computer so that they could see everything that I touched and typed. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, she went upstairs. She was all mad that I, you know, had been upset with her. And, and I don't recall being angry, but, you know, she went upstairs and she told my adoptive mother that I had called her a fucking slut and a fat bitch and all these just like really terrible things. And I was just downstairs on my computer. I think I was playing Minecraft probably. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> So my dad comes downstairs and he, he comes into my room. He like busts my door open. He grabs me by the back of my shirt. He picks me up and he's just, what did you say to your sister? And he's just freaking out. And he picks me up right off the ground and he starts hitting me into the wall. And oh, it didn't, it didn't really hurt because, you know, he's older and, and, you know, like it was like, it was, you could see his face was like so sweaty and red. Like he could just like barely hold me up. And uh, try not to have a heart attack. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, at you know, at 15, I, I realized that, 
you know, then I'm bigger than you and you can't do this to me anymore. Yeah. So I grabbed him by the front of his shirt and I picked him up right off the ground. And now this is, this is the thing that I think I feel the most guilt about in my entire life because he was already crippled, but I picked him up right off the ground and I slammed him into the hardwood floor on his back so hard. I actually rebroke it. And uh, so he had to have a couple surgeries, but, uh, I had, I had managed to get in contact with my biological dad at, you know, around that time. And, um, so I was dating this girl locally. And, and so I called her and I said, Hey, listen, can you get somebody to come give me a ride? I need out of here. Like right now, like in, in five minutes. And this is, you know, like seven, eight o'clock at night. Yeah. It's so, kind of an uh, emergency. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but in the, in the, in the process of this struggle, my dad had actually broken my ribs. He uh, punched me in the ribs a couple of times. Oof. And so she had gotten her neighbor to drive all the way up to my house. And I lived in like the most rural part of, of my area, like, you, you know, way, way in the back. And uh, so he drove out to my house and he, he picked me up with her and uh, I had to lay down across the back seat and I'm like, I'm clutching my side. And he's like, you need to go see a doctor. Are you okay? You got to go to the hospital. I'm like, no, I'm fine. Yeah, and, and I get to my girlfriend's house and she takes a look and like, I'm purple from my, uh, from my hip to my armpit. Yeah. And she's, you know, it was bad, but I, I never ended up going to the doctor. I, I just have this thing about doctors. I don't know why, but uh, that hmm. that's how I ended up on my own. And so I had like completely excommunicated myself from my family by doing this thing that I had done and choosing to leave. And, and so, you know, all of a sudden I was cut off from, from, you know, not only my brothers, but you know, the family that I knew the little resources that I did have. The family you did have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I ended up continuing to go to school while I'm living at this, at my girlfriend's house and uh, Mm -hmm. working a a part-time job at nighttime. And I still like my, my only goal was like, I just got to graduate, like nothing else matters. I just have to make sure I get that GED so that I can get a good job. University's off the plate. Now I've got no support. And, uh, you know, my teachers were not like my last block of the day. I would have a, you know, an English teacher who'd say to me, you can't leave early. I'm like, it's 15 minutes. I got to get on a bus to get to work. And she goes, I don't care. You can't leave. I'm going to, you know, like, I'm going to dock marks off of you for attendance. Yeah. Issues. I'm like, yeah. You're going to fail me for trying to support myself. And she's just like, yeah, sorry about your luck, man. And I'm like, oh man, like it was just brutal. And yeah, uh, I think some people don't get that. You're out there, you're trying to survive and there's all yeah. these little roadblocks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we're going to fail you. You know, yeah. And Here's these, yeah. <laughs> these teachers, they just like, they can't even imagine a world where a 15 year old is, you know, completely on their own. You know, they, they have all these resources and things that they know about, you know, they obviously aren't going to share them with you because you're not asking, but you know, they can't, they can't imagine you don't a know. world where, no, exactly. Yeah. And I, you did, have no I idea. didn't know any of these resources were available to me at the time. My life would have been a lot different if I had. Yeah. It never you're, you're expecting your parents to take care of you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the number one resource was that like kids in foster care and if any kids or people who have, you know, uh, aged out of the foster care system in Canada don't know this, but if you're under the age of 27, your education is completely and utterly free for post-secondary tuition. They just cover it. No questions asked. You fill out a piece of paper, they send it to the school you've applied to, no tuition, it's gone. You just have to cover your cost of living in your books. So anybody out there who needs that resource, it's called the BC tuition waiver and you can better your life. High school did not have to be the stopping point for you. 
Good information. Yes. I'm no, that's going to help a lot of people. Yeah, totally. Like <laughs> listeners just go back, you know, maybe like 30 seconds and like listen to it again. That's yeah. good information. Thank yeah. you for bringing that up. Of course. <laughs> so, so you're, you know, you're, so you're 15, you're trying to do this. So <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to see where the story's going here. Cause I don't, I mean, this is a lot of stuff that's happened to you. <laughs> mm. You're, 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 you're 15 and you're just trying to graduate high school. You're trying to survive and you're not really, you know, what about your feelings at this time? Oh. You probably didn't even have time to think about them, did you? If you are experiencing estrangement from a family member and would like to be a guest, please email us at wtbbpodcast at gmail.com. Not really, but I will disclose this just for the fun of it. Okay. Um, so I, I have a condition called type 2 bipolar disorder. And so mm. type two bipolar disorder is called a I know rapid, what that is. <laughs> yeah, rapid cycling bipolar. So that doesn't mean that it happens every day or every yeah. minute. Medically, it just means that it happens more than four times a year. So you have mm. these sort of manic episodes and depressive episodes. But the, the really fun thing, and, and so bipolar disorder is, is less common in teenagers. And it's usually more prevalent in young people when a parent has it and that those children go through some, you know, some fairly severe trauma right, to kind of right. trigger those developmental genes right. um, and that change in the brain. So when you are going through puberty and the hormone imbalance in your brain is just out of control on a good day, and then you drop bipolar uh -huh. disorder on top of it, it is the most destructive force that ever existed. Like Hurricane Katrina has nothing on my emotions. I destroyed my own life over and over and over again just for the sake of quenching this anxiety that was like being struck by a bolt of lightning at any given moment. So bipolar disorder is really funny. You know, your girlfriend breaks up with you, you're sad. It's, it's kind mm -hmm. of the end of the world. You know, sometimes it can be a really big deal, um, yeah. especially when we're teenagers. I mean, I know most of us can barely remember it, but for me, it was like someone literally stuck a lightning rod in the side of my stomach and hooked it up to BC Hydro's power dam and was just <laughs> shocking me every minute of every day. And the only way that I could figure out how to deal with these, like these feelings that were so intense and overwhelming, like I like having a heart attack at any given moment mm -hmm. was yeah. that there was no real behavior or no solution to make them go away. I had no resources. I had no way to like, you know, calm myself, no, no sort of mindfulness to be able to keep control. So my only solution was just to act like a psychopath, you know, just <laughs> yeah, making decisions that not only didn't make sense to, to me, but the people around me, especially. And, and even before I left my home, you know, my parents would say things like, you know, why did you do that? And I'd say, I don't know. And they would say something along the lines of, I don't know, isn't a reason. Mm -hmm. And for all of us who have heard this, I am telling you now, I don't know is 100% a valid reason. <laughs> Anybody who tells you otherwise is absolutely dead wrong. I don't know yes. is a valid reason. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, dealing with these, these huge emotions and this anxiety and, and, and not just the anxiety, because, you know, we all remember those special times in our life. You know, you go outside and it's a beautiful morning and it's kind of the atmosphere is really perfect and you can kind of smell 
you know, say fall on the air. And, and it's just those <laughs> moments that we want to hold on to and remember because they're just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah. I was having those like 16 times a day. You know, mm. so I, I'm trying to hold on to all these beautiful things and moments. And like, sometimes I'm so happy that I couldn't stand it. And other times I'm so sad that I, I you know, I just want to kill myself. And and, uh-huh. and not just with happy and sad, like when it comes to things like jealousy, oh Lord, when I was jealous, like, like no, no nothing like a woman scorn. You should see me when I'm jealous. <laughs> it, it's just it, uncontrollable behavior. So what were um, some of know, the other, sorry, I didn't mean to like interrupt, but like, what were yeah. some of the feelings, if you could label them, you know, at 15, I mean, these are big things. I mean, I remember being 15. Yeah. The littlest crush is like a big, huge, I mean, it feels really, 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 really big. Yeah. And so, you know, I know what feeling like thinking that you're in love when you're 15, but when you're mm-hmm. feeling like abandoned. Yes. Like, can you talk a little bit about what you were feeling at that time? Oh, I was angry. Yeah. I was such an angry, angry person. And uh, I was angry about everything. But at the time when it happened, I didn't feel so much angry about abandonment because I was so used to this this type of, of right. thing happening in my life that it didn't feel like abandonment. It felt like my choice. Like, it was my decision to you know, call these people to come rescue me and to, you know, finally have enough with my dad. So that wasn't so much the abandonment issue. The abandonment issue came from, from, you know, like my, my brothers writing me off because I, you know, I didn't fit into the bubble of this upper middle-class lifestyle that my adoptive parents were trying to provide for me. You know, they thought I was an idiot and couldn't understand why I couldn't just, you know, conform to them. So like I lost my brothers and then you know, I would come across them every couple of years and I haven't spoken to them, any of them in over a decade, but, you know, I'll see them every once in a while doing their thing. And, and, you know, they look at me and I look at them and we're strangers. We don't know each other. So at that time I was pretty crushed with the loss of like my direct family, you know, and I was also pretty crushed with losing something that had become not a stable home, but a home where stability could be had because I was there every day. A, right. a routine home. Yeah. So that loss was, was a big deal. So, you know, we were talking about that a, a little bit, you know, the other day and you had mentioned something to me that, you know, your parents, you, so you were saying you were in foster care, but I don't, I don't remember you exactly telling me what happened with your parents and how you ended up in foster care. We don't have to, you know, go too deep into that story, but, you know, there is a point to my question because I was curious, but first of all, what happened with your parents? When was the last time you saw your parents? Did you know where they were when your new parent, when your adopted parents took you in? What's kind of that whole dynamic there? Okay. So there are a couple of legal issues in regards to the discussion of this with the with the ministry. Um, okay, so that's there is fine. a there's a very large ongoing um, trial in 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 kind of uh, regards to to what happened with me okay. and my brothers and about a hundred other kids um, involved in the Vancouver Island uh, ministry's care. But uh, okay. I can generalize. I just can't give out any names. So. Basically, when when I was about, I don't know, I think I was probably about two and a half years old, my 
parents who were very, very young decided to go to the ministry to ask for respite care. So my mom, I believe, was 19 years old when she had my two older twin brothers. Mm -hmm. And she was pregnant before she met my dad. And she had just found out, or she wasn't quite sure, but she thought she might be pregnant. So she went and she found my dad. And uh, I believe they had been friends previous, but not close. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she hooked up with him. And then a couple of days later said, Real, I'm pregnant. You got to take care of me. So she had, you know, essentially trapped him into a relationship Mm -hmm. that the children weren't even his. Right. So my brothers were born. My, My mom suffers from couple of conditions but the only two that i know of is um bipolar disorder and some type of schizophrenia so okay. she's a bipolar schizophrenic okay. and she also really really enjoys drugs or she did at the time and so mm-hmm. as we all know with bipolar disorder and drugs they don't <laughs> mix no. like drugs are bad <laughs> in general but when you take a bipolar person and 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 give them cocaine you're in for a world of trouble mm-hmm so this, you know, 19, 20 year old woman, she's got two kids, she's alone, she has, you know, severe mental illness, and the children are sick. So both of my brothers had really bad gastrointestinal conditions, they were lactose intolerant, and nobody knew. So they were just crying, screaming, they, you know, like purple crying, they just would not stop 24 hours a day. My mom's oh. losing it. She gets pregnant yeah. with me. And then, you know, and they had decided, they said, you know, we're going to have this, this one, we're going to make this one intentionally. So they made me. And uh, so I suddenly was this perfect creation of theirs in every way. Like I couldn't, I couldn't, I guess, do anything wrong. And, um, you know, I was just this angelic figure in their life, whereas the twins were, were, were sort of a nightmare to them. So my parents tried really hard to bond with me and both of them kind of severely neglected my two brothers. So there was a time period when um, they asked for the ministry for some assistance with maybe getting some respite because a ministry worker had offered like, hey, listen, you can put your kids in respite for a short period of time if you guys yeah. need, you know, some social assistance or whatever, some help, some time to get yourself in a place to be better parents. And we walked in the door, they walked in the door, we were dropped off and we were never allowed out again. So we went into foster care and we're gone immediately. Wow. So my parents, they, they fought really hard to try and get us back when, when we were young. And, and for the longest time, I, I just only really knew their side of the narrative. I didn't understand that there were, you know, like multiple reports of, you know, my parents having left my brother in my brothers in their diapers for like days at a time. There was starvation issues like malnutrition. There's, there was just extreme neglect. Um, but I, much too young to remember. And I don't believe any of that ever happened directly to me. Mm -hmm. So we were put in into the foster care system and we were moved around a lot just to make sure that my parents didn't know where we were because the island communities are very small and a lot of people know a lot of people. So it was pretty easy to find someone that you were looking for. Mm -hmm. So we were moved from town to town, district to district. We lived in Cinnabar Valley and Nanaimo all over the place. And, and, we ended up with this, this social care worker who, you know, she was older. She seemed very, very lovely. Um, and she dropped us off with uh, um, an older family who was going to be fostering us. And uh, they mm-hmm. ended up fostering us for quite a few years. But they, they didn't really do a great job. So one, we were left 
alone almost all of the time with no supervision. Oh, oh God. The other thing was that we had regular visitors over to the house who were sort of there to, um, to enjoy us as children. So not so much fun. And I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail on that. Right. Right. There, That's enough. There was, yeah. Yeah. There, there was some things going on there. And so what I found out later through um, a little bit of connection through this court case was that this social worker had been creating false reports about checkups on these kids. So saying that the checkups had been done, everything looked healthy, things were going normally, oh, they were getting right. their education. And so mm-hmm. the foster parents were actually paying her to do this. And so, you know, I don't know a whole lot about how this system works, but from my understanding is that our paperwork was pushed to the side and we were never checked up on other than by her while Uh we were in this just, just absolutely extreme situation. But the thing is we didn't know it was extreme at the time because we were so sure you were kids. You couldn't have known. Yes. Yeah. We had no idea. We were presented with this reality and we accepted it. So, you know, when this woman would come over, all of a sudden, all the toys from the high shelf that we could never reach were on the floor and we were put in, in normal clothing and, you know, allowed to run around and play with these toys. And, you know, she would come over and, you know, see that things were pretty normal as far as normal could be for, you know, their arrangement. And then the moment she walked out the door, those toys were, you know, they were packed up into a box and put onto a, onto a really high shelf, um, you know, in the hallway before and locked away so that we couldn't get our hands on them just to show like a symbol of normalcy. And and we didn't understand. It was just like, Oh, it's time to play with toys. Like, you know, this is great. We never get this. Yeah. Or we get to play with toys while mom has a visit. So we don't bother anyone. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. And when any of my, and they had children of their own. So when any of my foster brothers had friends over, if there were any other adults in the house, you know, life was like, it, it was like a, you know, a, like a Christmas miracle movie. It was just, it was wonderful for the period of time that they were there until they were gone. And mm-hmm. then after they were gone, it was like, it was worse because they had had to treat us so well. Like if, if I went upstairs and said, Hey, like, listen, I'm hungry. And they would go, Oh yeah, yeah. We'll make you a snack. Like here, you know, we got some chef Boyardee for you or whatever. And I would, you know, I would eat that and, and, and be stoked and, you know, I'm like, I'm still hungry. I haven't eaten since yesterday. And if I said something like that in front of their guests, they, you know, they were such good liars. They, you know, they would say like, oh, you know, kids imaginations. He's so silly. And, right. You know, you know how just, picky kids can be. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. You are listening to When the Bell Breaks with your host, Alexis Erolin. So we were put into a building called the Extension School, which is located in Cinnabar Valley. And um, it actually got torn down this year, which is really neat. I, I actually, after we had our little chat, I went to try and find where this school was. Um, it's called the Extension School of Cinnabar Valley. And it, uh, mm-hmm. it, it was closed in 2001, which was probably the last year that I went there, maybe a little bit sooner. But uh, when mm-hmm. Cinnabar Valley Elementary School opened up, but um for the majority of the time that I lived there, we actually didn't attend school. We weren't allowed to leave the house and the time periods that we did leave school, you know, we were sometimes sent home because we smelled bad or we didn't have food with us. 
And, and for whatever reason, our educators didn't take notice. They, you know, there was no red flags. There was like, they're like, oh, these, you know, these dirty, poor foster kids are showing up to school with, with like old clothes and they, they reek and they don't have any food. Like, you know, you'd think you'd call somebody, right? But they didn't, they didn't have the foresight to do that. So we would just be sent home. And after a while, they just said we were being homeschooled and they just left us at home. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was not yeah. good. And we didn't know what anything was like. I had never seen a television before. Like, I don't really recall having seen a television up closer in person until I was probably about eight or nine years old. I didn't I didn't understand it or, or know what it was. So like the first time I saw a television, I was just like, oh, my God, there's a, there's somebody in the box. Like, how do I get them out? You know, they're like. It, it was just magic to me. Um, wow. So, so you weren't allowed to like go to school anymore. Yeah. So, and you have no television. No. And no food. What did no. you do all day? Well, that's the thing. We just played. We just, we were let loose outside. Um, Cinnabar Valley is a really small community. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, we would, we would go find the neighbor kids and, and, you know, go, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Light you start to see who has snacks mud. laying around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what are so, you having for snack? Or yeah, you start to kind of like see what you can get elsewhere and escape your reality for a little bit. Yes. And also yeah. a lot of the times we were locked out. So like there was no option to jeez oh, to go back inside because they didn't they didn't want us there, especially if they were gonna have guests over and it was the middle of the day. It was like just go play outside. And you know, we didn't have any toys. You know, I remember you, a really you knew that you weren't unwanted at that age or was that something you discovered when you were older? I, I don't know if I had, I, I know it now, but I, I don't know if I had the concept at the time. It was just like, this is a normal Tuesday. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So I had, I had no idea. They were just like, you're outside to play and we're locking the door. And I'm like, Oh, but I don't want to be outside. And they're like, tough kitty. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like I remember there was a winter where I, I, they locked us in our rooms a lot of the time too, depending on what was going on. And I, I remember that I had been locked in my room for like some time. I, I, it was so long ago that my idea of time, it might've been like, you know, only a few hours, but it, it also may have been days, but I had to pee so bad. Like it, it hurt. And I just, I had to pee and there was no way to get out of my room. There was no window. There was, there was no, I couldn't get out. So I, I ended up having to pee on the floor in the corner. And uh, when they found out that I had done this, they actually, they tossed me outside and uh, it was pretty cold. There wasn't any snow on the ground, but it was, it was, I think it may have been snowing. And so I was thrown outside in just, I, I think they were like my morning pajamas or whatever. Like they were like boxer shorts. Right. And, and a t-shirt and I had no shoes on. And I remember I had to, I was trying to find somewhere to go. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm walking down this, this, this street in Cinnabar Valley. It's it's a long hill. And uh, the pavement is so cold. It's burning my feet and I can't walk. And uh, it hurts. And I, and I need to find something to put on my feet because it's so cold. And, uh, somebody had an, an industrial like uh, bin in their, in their driveway, like a, like a cardboard bin. Yeah. And so I ended up um, 
crawling inside of this bin to try and get out of the cold. And uh, I don't know how long I was in there, um, but somebody somebody saw me. One of the neighbors saw me, and I, you know, I don't know what they thought of this, you know, like half yeah. naked, half naked, you know, six year old trying to crawl into a dumpster. Like I, I think I almost fell trying to get into it because, like, trying to step up into a dumpster even as an adult is a is a pretty harrowing task. Yeah, they're tall. <laughs> Yeah. So anyways, I got inside this thing and I'm like, and I'm hiding in here and, and some time went by and I was, I was, I was getting dizzy and I, I think I was trying to go to sleep and somebody pulled me out and, uh, it was the owner of the house came in and pulled me out of this building or out of this, out of this thing. It took me into their house. And, uh, and it was an old man and he, and he sat with me for a while and, and, you know, ended up, taking me back to my house and of course my foster parents when he knocked on the door they were like oh my gosh there he is like he got out of the house we don't like we've been looking for him you know thank you so much for bringing him back and uh you know like that was that was the first time I really noticed the inconsistency in in what it was you know what what was going on and uh you know ever since then that you know I used to even in the summer I'd, I'd go walking down and I'd see him and I would I would stop and he was always so nice to me and uh, he used to let me pick plums off his off his tree in his front yard and yeah he was just I remember him and I, I think he might be gone now because he was pretty old then but uh do you I remember, remember his him. name no I don't think I knew it yeah but uh yeah it was it was so long ago but yeah it was it was tough and then you know we had a neighbor directly across from us who had a son with some mental illness. Um, I'm not sure like he was, he was disabled, like fully disabled. It may have been, um, uh, down syndrome. There was, you know, it was very clear in his face. I remember his face. And, um, so he used to play with us and I know he was much, much older than we were, but I think mentally he was around the same age. And, uh, so this is probably in the, in the summertime, I think. And, uh, he ended up getting me alone. And, uh, you know, pinning me down and, and just, you know, t- taking his taking his time about the thing. But I, I just I remember the noise that he used to make because of his disability. Like I could hear it in my ear. It was just this, this just horrible grunting sound. It just it kills me. And so like my 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 ex-wife, she just she hates that I can't stand to be around people with severe disability and it's not because I don't like them or think that they're wonderful people but I just yeah I I can't even look at their face without you know just being triggered just triggered just destroyed right like they just they they make me feel vile and not because they're bad people or like I have anything against them I think most of them any of the ones that I have met and interacted with they're absolutely lovely sweethearts but yeah you know this this boy was like crazy strong and I just I couldn't get away yeah. And so I went home after and uh, I tried to tell my foster parents what had happened. Yeah. And so they actually called his parents. And, you know, here I'm thinking like, you know, somebody's going to finally do something. And so what they did was they actually they brought him over to my house and I was having a bath because I was I was all dirty and I'm sitting in the bathtub and they bring him into the bathroom where I'm just, I'm sitting naked and exposed. And they tell me to apologize to him. 
because I I had somehow insinuated the circumstance. I had somehow, you know, this boy obviously was not able to make these decisions on his own. And I had, you know, you know, coaxed their child into, you know, into performing something that he did not want to. And that, you know, I had somehow damaged this boy. Um, and they, yeah, they made me, they made me apologize to him. So, you know, it was, it wasn't good. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting over here looking for my box of tissues. (laughs) I feel like for me, the worst kind of traumas weren't measurable by the actual act of what happened. I feel like the worst parts of my my personal trauma were those times when I asked for help and not only was denied, but also further exposed and then made to feel like it was my fault. Yes. Yeah, there's something to be said about the saying screaming for help when you say screaming for help it's a very emotional thing yeah i get that um so as an adult i'm assuming you know you graduated call or high school to start mm-hmm. yeah and then you went on to study and study and study and study where you know much of your personal time and so I obviously we can just say easily that that affected you majorly like negatively. Oh, absolutely. But as an adult now, obviously it's still difficult to talk about those things always are. And I really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing those things because even though they're hard to listen to, it you know, it puts things into perspective and context and we understand these feelings, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so it's important. So I just wanted to say thank you for that, first of all. But, you know, how did you deal with this? All of this, having, you know, your parents having not been able to care for you anymore for one reason or another, going through all of that, seeing neglect and abuse, seeing it done to other people and having it done to you, not, you know, all thinking that it was normal. And then one day realizing that it's not, and then you have all of these feelings coming up again and you're identifying, you know, going through your trauma. What was that like? So, you know, did you ever go to counseling for any of this stuff? I know we already kind of talked about this, but you know, for our listeners sake, Yes, um, I did end up going to counseling for a number of yeah. years, um, which is what exposed me to counseling and, and psychotherapy, which is why I want to do what I do. Um, right. So I saw a lot of counselors. It was mandated that we see some counselors when we were first adopted, though it was a big hassle for my adoptive parents to have to deal with taking us. You know, we lived quite a ways out of the way. So them having to drive us was a big deal. And then the fact that they just didn't believe in it. Um you know, though it was mandated by the ministry over here that, you know, we see uh, certain certain counselors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the first time I saw a counselor, my adoptive mom came in and it was a woman and she was wonderful. She's absolutely wonderful. And she worked for the uh, the mission, um, it's a, like the mission mental health unit in downtown mm-hmm. mission. She was just just a wonderful lady. 
And so I had, you know, I'd been with my adoptive parents for quite a bit of time at this point and things weren't so good. But so when my mom came in to, you know, to, you know, she came in for the first counseling session and uh, she told my counselor, like, listen, you got to be really careful with this one. He doesn't have any respect for women. And, you know, like he'll, he'll just charm you right off your feet. Um, so, you know, she was purposely setting up a dialogue with my, with my counselor who was, I believe a counselor in training. So she had someone else there in the room every once in a while, also doing right. her counseling hours to get, to, to get certified. So she was very, yes. very new to counseling. She had very mm-hmm. little experience, but she, she saw through my mom before my mom opened her mouth. Yeah. So when my mom left that counseling session about halfway through, she, the first thing she said is, are you okay? And do you need help? And I said, I'm, I'm okay. And I don't think I need help except maybe to do these counseling sessions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think right. I can handle this with some support. <laughs> yes. You know, so yeah. We, we ended up having quite a great therapeutic relationship for about a year and then I believe she actually had to refer me on because she was moving into a different part of her study and becoming a different kind of counselor. Um, so, you know, I, I, I went to counseling for quite a few years as an adult, but mm-hmm. surprisingly, most of the work that was done to kind of get over these traumas was actually just living life. It, it, it was outside of the counseling therapy room, but the counseling did play a very major role in my ability to, to stop you know, consider how I was feeling, what was actually causing it. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, be able to not react so emotionally to things. That was the biggest thing I ever took out of counseling. Yeah. Yeah. You want to withdraw and you want to just, you know, y- you think, oh, I can just barely manage my feelings. So I'm just going to stay home, you know, like I'm not yeah. going to interact with anybody, but really it's like, once you get out there and apply, like take what you've learned and what these experiences have taught you and everything that you've been able to kind of work at in counseling and therapy, when you do go out there and start doing things, yeah, it's really, really scary. And it yes. doesn't matter like how long ago all this was. Sometimes I still feel like I want to withdraw, but you know, if that, if I, if I feel myself going back into withdrawing, like I, I call in somebody, I schedule myself something to do Mm -hmm. because I know that it's not practical to get there. And, you know, even though it feels comfortable, (laughs) you know, you know, in the moment it's, it's not practical and it's hard work um, to, uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you end up being presented with this mountain of, of things that you have to work through. Uh And it just, it seems so big that, that just even taking on the task itself, is so exhausting. Just thinking about taking on the task is so exhausting that most people choose not to. That's why people get stuck. Right. So and that's why counseling is such a positive thing. Yes. And so I'm going to like, you know, kind of like flip things around a little bit, you know, hearing, you know, your background and stuff like that. It's, it's so interesting. And, and now it kind of brings me back to what we were talking about in our chat the other day is, you know, why is it, why do you want to be on this show? What has estrangement taught you? What have you learned? What have you have, how have you uh, conducted your life around this sort of long-term ongoing estrangement that seems to occur with not just your parents, not just your siblings, but all these other people who were supposed to take care of you? What have you learned and what do you want to share with 
the people who are listening to these episodes? Mm. Well, it's kind of a it's kind of a big question. It's it's kind of a lot. It is so a lot. If I were to pack it down into one thing, is that no matter how long you feel like something is going to last or how painful it's going to be and how in, you know, it, impermanent it actually is, mm-hmm. it's going to end and it will be over and things may not necessarily be better, but they will be different. And this pain that you're feeling now is really, truly, and honestly, as temporary as you are willing to put in the work to make it. Hmm. So when that's you, very encouraging. When you're suffering, you know, it's like, you know, I, I used to have a real problem with drinking and now I don't drink at all. I have been sober for an, quite a few years now. Um, okay. But Good you me. would notice, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. When you, when you, when you get too drunk, you feel sick and you just, you want it to be over that, you know, you're throwing up the room spinning and you just, you're like, this ruined my night and I just want to go to bed, but I can't close my eyes because I'm spinning every time I do. And it's just going to make me puke again. Mm-hmm. And you just, you want it to be over. And so you just keep telling yourself, you know, it's going to be over soon. Like it, this is going to pass. I'm going to, yeah. you know, it's, it's going to be gone when I wake up in the morning. I just have to make it through right now. Yeah. And trauma is kind of like being drunk in that way. It's, it's, it's only temporary and traumas can last your entire lifetime. They can last 20, 30 years, yeah. but only as, as long as you're willing to not put in the work, will those things define you. Right. Right. And you can, when you can find a support system and that's the hardest step is, is because this feels so heavy and like, it's going to last so long and be so permanent that without a support system, you're going to, you're going to be this person forever and you can't ever change. And you're always going to hate when people touch you and you're always going to hate the sound, uh, you know, that a, that a mentally disabled person makes when they cry out, you know, and then all of a sudden you find your support system or your support system finds you and you don't have a choice in the matter. And mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you can, cause that happens sometimes people yeah, see what's sometimes. going on and they're like, Hey man, we're going to help you. And you're going to shut up about it. Um, <laughs> you know, you get these support systems and you, you know, you, you, you take on that monumental, exhausting task of just one day at a time getting a little bit better. Even if it takes the rest of your life, it's temporary. Thank you for listening to When the Bow Breaks. As always, please remember to like, follow, and share. Links in this week's show notes. I started to learn that, that things will change. Things do evolve. Yes. And, you know, even though it's limited, I do have, you know, a certain level of control and responsibility. You know, there's some wiggle room. I can choose mm-hmm. how I respond to things. Yes. I can choose to be a better listener. I can choose to ask for help. Uh, you know, so there, you know, there are things that I can do, but I do take comfort in knowing that, yes, this situation is not going to last forever. Yes. It's going to change. It's like, I, I tell myself, you know, I'm finding my, you know, I'm telling my kids that, 
you know, this whole pandemic, it's not going to last forever. It's going to change. You know, oh, I'm, I'm tired of like people so saying, long. yeah, I know. I, I'm tired of people saying, oh, it couldn't get worse. It couldn't get worse. It's like, let's start saying something different. Let's start saying yeah. like, it's yeah. going to get better. It's yes. going to change. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to get better necessarily. It's it just going to be different. But it's going to change. It is. Yes. And, you know, it, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All those people in your life who said when you were young, well, don't worry, it gets better when you get older. No, no, they're lying to you and they're lying yes. to themselves. It yes, didn't get but better. things will change. <laughs> yes, it, it didn't get better. You just got way better at dealing with it. So it doesn't affect you the same way. You learn there the you tools go. to take care of yourself that mm -hmm. weren't available to you when you were a rowdy teenager. Like they, they, right. they're just, it's better mm -hmm. in a sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So as an adult dealing with estrangement, have you found any resources or links or books that you kind of go back to that kind of helped you, you know, whether it's directly or indirectly related to estrangement, I, whatever, if it's related to your story in general, you know, um, you already shared with us uh, one resource, you know, about the, uh, you know, free education. Uh, if you're, mm -hmm. yeah, um, that was great. Do you have anything else that you want to share that our listeners can go back to and check yes. out? Yeah, absolutely. So because I'm studying psychotherapy and uh, psychology, mm -hmm. um, which has been the, you know, one of the biggest helpers in my life is instead of being in a counseling office, becoming a counselor, it, you know, helps you change as a person. Um, there are a few things that I know to be true with not only people who've been estranged, but, you know, people who've grown up in foster care, people who've grown up in normal, quote, air quote, normal households that are, are dealing with mental illness, there are some resources that are available to you that you might feel are, you know, like a, a failure if you have to call them or, or, or talk to a counselor and you're not a failure. You are not a failure when you reach out for help. You are, right. you, you are as strong as you could be when you reach out to some of these resources and say, hey, listen, I'm not doing so good. I need some help because, you know, that's, that's not a sign of weakness. So if there's anyone mm -hmm. out there who's dealing with you know, depression, suicidal thoughts, any mental health crisis as, at all that, you know, needs immediate attention, I, I would absolutely encourage you to call the suicide hotline of British Columbia or Canada, which is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's 1-800-SUICIDE. So that's going to be 1-800-784-2433. And those people, they, they're not counselors, but they want to talk to you just like I want to talk to you. We want to mm -hmm. make sure that you're okay. These people are here to support you and give you the resources that they have on hand to get you the help that you need in, in the area that you're living in. And then also, if you need to talk to a counselor, you know, something a little bit more in depth, maybe just to work on something quickly, um, there are free counselors available, again, pretty much 24 hours a day. But unfortunately they have a specific cutoff age and it's 25 years old. So a youth in Canada is considered to be 25 or under. So if you are 25 and under and struggling with some mental health issues and you need to speak with a counselor, you absolutely can talk to the kids helpline, which is different than the suicide awareness, suicide prevention line. And that's 1-800-668-6868. And, you know, it, it, it's not just for kids, even though they named it that, you know, very vicariously, like it's for 25 and under. So if you're a young adult and you're having some issues, please call the kids helpline. They would love to talk to you. 
And then also we have like a couple of other resources. If you don't have access to a phone to call somebody, if you have access to the internet, you can actually go directly to youthinbc.com and they have a ton of resources that will connect you directly with somebody who is, you know, able to maybe help you through a crisis. And then mm -hmm. also mindcheck.ca, which is a BC sanctioned website. They're absolutely fantastic. They have counselors on hand. So that's just mindcheck.ca. Okay. And uh, so, and anybody who has experienced any severe sexual trauma or needs any resources as far as sexual education goes, you can actually go to www.scarletteen.com. That is mm -hmm. one of the best educational resources on the planet. So as a, as an educator or a parent, if you are uncertain on how you're going to approach your young, young teenagers, you know, on how to bring up these kinds of topics and make sure that your children are, are you know, engaging in, in healthy behaviors that aren't going to be damaging to them as an adult. I would strongly recommend this resource because it has an education, like an educator section. It's phenomenal. And then it also has its section that you could just hand it to your kids and be like, listen, I'm uncomfortable talking to you about this, but I want you to have the resources. Here you go. <laughs> so scarletteen.com, just incredible. So those are the resources that I'm familiar with on a regular basis because I do a lot of work with youth. You know, I do mm -hmm. have interactions with work through the Christian fellowship, stuff like that. I'm not a Christian, but they're a great resource to connect with youth who are sort of in crisis. So that's what mm -hmm. I do with my spare time. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, who is Alexander now? What What is he up to now? We talked about, you know, a lot about what you went through and kind of what you learned. But how are you doing now? And like, what's your next move? <laughs> well, that's the fun part is that I have no idea. Um, <laughs> so I'm a father. I'm a mm -hmm. very very, very excited to be a father kind of father. I love my children. I love them more than I love my own life. I love them to a point where it's probably unhealthy, but I don't care because I love them. And uh, so I'm a, you know, I'm a full-time employee, a full-time student and a single dad now just recently because my wife has decided that she wants to, you know, maybe do something a little bit healthier for herself. Um, so, you know, the life looks pretty bleak as far as those things go but from, from, from my point of view, I'm excited. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and maybe that's just my change in outlook as I get older, but uh, you know, I've got this great educational opportunity and, and I'm going to have this opportunity to, you know, help people who are in my circumstance who are, you know, screaming for help and, and, you know, that just wasn't available to them. Maybe I, I'll be able to make a difference for somebody with, this experience that I have and also for my children. Like, I think you have, I think that when you were young and vulnerable and, you know, exposed, it was very scary and yes. you were delicate, but, you know, and you had to grow it, you know, learn how to grow in a very, very harsh, harsh environment, which has made you very, very strong. And I can definitely see the, see the contrast in how you responded to things then as you respond to things now. I mean, like you said, things look pretty bleak, but you have, but you're happy. You have yeah. a happy oh, yeah. outlook and a healthy attitude towards, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, 
hey, life is good and, you know, it's changing and there's things to explore. There's things to learn, um, you know, and I, and I love the honesty and the authenticity about, I don't really know. <laughs> and that's okay because it's like, yeah. there's so many things in the world. There's so many jobs to do. There's so many resources at your disposal, like you were saying. By the way, for our listeners, I, I'm going to do some work uh, after this episode uh, closes up here to see if I can find the uh, equivalent uh, or nearest equivalent to some of these suggestions uh, in U.S. link form as well um, mm -hmm. for our U.S. listeners, too. Absolutely. So I wanted to put that out just to make that a note for myself when I go back and listen <laughs> to this episode. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, I, I've definitely seen your growth and I've definitely seen how you've changed and how, um, you know, your the things that you've learned. I mean, I don't know if I can ask this, you know, on the air, but I mean, how old are you? Because I think that's might put things into some perspective, too. I um, am 27. My goodness. See, yeah. I've learned. I've learned. I mean, some people would say I'm a baby. I mean, I'm getting close to 40 here. So, you know, <laughs> it's starting to sting a little bit. But um, mm -hmm. I know that there's still plenty more for me to learn. And I want to thank, thank you for coming on the show. I don't know if there is there anything else that you want to say or add uh, that we kind of missed or, you know, we want to touch base on. Um, we definitely want to see more of you uh, and to our listeners. We're going to you're going to see more of him. Don't worry. But before we no. close up this episode, you know, do you have anything else you kind of want to share? Sure. So the examples that I give about my life as a very young person, it's hard to keep in perspective from people who haven't experienced childhood trauma to understand that. You know, we as kids, we didn't know that we were experiencing trauma. You know, right. we didn't know that these things like sexual abuse for us was so common that it it just was like something that happened after breakfast. Like it's time to do your chores and now it's time to go lay down on the bathroom floor. You know, there these were not unusual things for us. And then mm -hmm. having to go to somebody as an adult and, and, you know, you're looking at the perspective of these problems that people have as adults who now understand and may even be re-traumatized from a different perspective. Um, whereas like, you know, we're, this is, this is just this Tuesday, it's Tuesday. This is the day that this happens. Like it's whatever I'm going to go, you know, play with, play with the kids after this. Like I'm going to go find a stick to beat against, you know, like yeah, exactly. It was not unusual. And so, and we were, in a community where this was rampant and full of, of other children that this kind of activity was happening to with adults who were just as confused as we were as little children, because they didn't either believe that it could be happening, didn't want to believe it could be happening or just didn't care. Right. They just, you know, it, it's a small community and, you know, these things may have even happened to them and, and for them to just like completely turn a blind eye you have to right. keep an eye out for the people around you. You have to mm -hmm. look at, and watch for those red flags, because if you don't say something, you can expect that no one else will. Right? Yeah. Can, and don't be afraid to be a little bit nosy, too, because like you said, you know, yeah, absolutely. They brushed you up, polished you up, brought, took the toys down, made you look normal for a few minutes. I mean, that's kind of what my life was like. I felt like was like sometimes I yeah. felt like we looked nice when we were out in public. And then when we were at home, it was just not it was just the opposite. You yes. know, 
And uh, yeah, nobody saw that. There were people who did see glimpses of it and and still chose to do nothing, you know, and Mm -hmm. say nothing. And that was damaging. It's like, you could have changed things for me, you know, a lot sooner. You could have, you could have saved me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's a perspective that we have to remember to keep out of our minds Mm -hmm. because it's coming from a place of want. It's like saying, I don't have this thing. I can't have this thing. And so I'm less because of it. Try. And I encourage you and your listeners as just as a, as a sort of positive reinforcement to change the way that you think about these things that have happened to you or were, because they're not you. They're something Mm -hmm. that happened that you can't change. Right. But they happened and you can't change them. Right. And real quick, before before we go, I wanted to touch base on something that we kind of chatted about the other day. And I know AC, he's been here on standby for this episode. Um, and he has a closing thought that he would like to share. So I'm going to give him, you know, a couple seconds head start uh, or uh, give myself, just give him a couple seconds <laughs> trying to word this properly here. Um, we talked, you talked about something, we touched a little bit on talk therapy. I wanted to hear Uh, what your, what your opinion was about that and how we kind of compared that, uh, talk therapy to, um, explosive diarrhea. (laughs) Yeah, that's my favorite. (laughs) Oh man. So just to throw one of those shameless plugs out there, um, there is a really wonderful science podcast called, um, ologies and it's a just a science communication podcast that just it sounds kind of boring for for nerdy people but it actually is like bill nye the science guy with uh, an absolutely hilarious host and she makes learning about you know the 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 strangest things in science absolutely just like unbearably fascinating um so (laughs) she's great and she runs some advertisements on her podcast now um, where she didn't before, but that was just to maintain funds so she could continue to be a, to be a content creator. And right. so she, she talks with a talk therapist and I actually managed to get a hold of the same talk therapist, just, just to have a discussion with them through my, you know, just for educational reasons. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I'm looking into um, you know, what I want to do after I finish my education. Uh-huh. And uh, so she explained to me, that talk therapy, which I always, I always hated it. I hated talk therapy. It was just, it was just such a silly thing. Like, why would I just go talk to this person? They don't give me any resources. They don't show me how to be a better person. They, they, there's no like, you know, watch my finger back and forth while I tap on your knees <laughs> and we, you know, we talk about your trauma. There's nothing like that going on. Right. And so she kind of bundles talk therapy up into a fart, which is great. I just, I love it. Talk <laughs> therapy is like, if you really got a fart, and you hold it in, it's just going to rot inside of you, right? It's just, it's going to be bad. And I like to, I like to chalk it up to just bad diarrhea. So you got all this bad stuff inside of you and, and, you know, you're in a relationship, you're not communicating really well, you know, say with your partner or your friend or whoever, you know, you, there's something happening and you hold it in. And after a while it, it makes you sick. And all of a sudden that stuff's got to come out, whether mm-hmm. it comes out slowly and gently and you know in handle like you know cleanable chunks or if you have explosive diarrhea it's going up the walls it's hitting everyone in the vicinity everything that you touch is going to be covered in the shit that you've kept inside of you forever and it's going to ruin you so it actually turns out that the psychology behind talk therapy is just amazing it's not for everybody 
It's not for people with serious mental disabilities or illnesses. If you have schizophrenia, you shouldn't go see a talk therapist or you should see a talk therapist in conjunction with a psychiatrist because they're mm-hmm. going to help you and help medicate you. And they are a doctor of psychiatry going to see a psychologist to talk about how you feel may not be super effective. If you have some of these, you know, these lesser function disabilities or conditions, mental, mental conditions. So you should not, you know, just rely on talk therapy. And if you're in talk therapy and it's not working for you because you have some, some of these kinds of problems, you probably should continue maybe that therapeutic relationship alongside another type of therapy. So that, that was my favorite analogy was your, your, your personal stuff is like a fart or bad diarrhea. And if you're going to hold it in, it's going to be really messy and you should probably go buy some, some, some cleaner because it's, it's, it's going to be a problem. Right. No, I felt like that too. I felt like, uh, you know, nobody else could handle hearing my stuff. Like nobody wanted to hear it. My family didn't want to hear it. It made everyone uncomfortable. Like, you know, nobody (laughs) wants to be around when someone farts. It's just like, ew, gross. You know, just go in the corner, go in the bathroom, you know, wherever, (laughs) do your thing, you know, bring a friend if you need need support. You know, it's, it's kind of like that. And I felt like when I first went to counseling, yeah, I was like spewing out everything. And, but that was his job and he didn't mind. He's, it's like, it's okay. Shit's my deal. Just go for it. (laughs) Yes. And that's, that's what I love about therapy and why I want to be a therapist. I want to be all kinds of therapists, but I can't Mm -hmm. choose all of them because I would be dead by the time I was finished the education (laughs) choir. Right. Right. All I want to do is have you shit on me. Like, that's it. I want to sit there and let you shit all over me or fart in my, in my, in my office. And that's a terrible thing to say, but it's not because I like it. It's not because the, you know, the heavy stuff that you're bringing to put on my shoulders is going to weigh me down or, or, you know, is, you know, I don't think much of it because my shit's way heavier than your shit. So like, what do you have to complain about? I never think that way. I -hmm. want you to come in to my office one day when I have a private practice and I want you to unload it all because then you don't have to carry it anymore. And I know how to file it away in the drawer. I know how to take it off my shoulders. I'm trained to take it off my shoulders and put it in a drawer and think about it from a point of view that isn't traumatizing. And, and most counselors are very, very good at compartmentalizing the stuff that you have to bring. So if you ever feel like, you know, nobody wants to hear your shit or it's not important or like most victims say, this is like the number one thing that victims say is like, oh, you know what? People are going through way worse stuff than I am. I don't have like, it's, you know, I don't need to talk to somebody about it. There are people there, there are children starving in Africa. Like, what do I have to complain about? Well, even counselors need counselors sometimes. And everyone, I think everyone in the world should have a therapist because they want to hear you. Right. Yeah. They, they want to, they want, they want to hear your problems. They, that's it's not, and it's not because they're being paid. They chose a career path that's not lucrative. Trust me. It's not, it's really, it's not the, the best career choice to take. And, <laughs> you know, they, they, they didn't choose it because they want to get paid to sit in an office and wear a tweed jacket with, with, you know, elbow patches and look smarter than you and, and sit on a pedestal. That's not what they're there for. They're not there to judge you. They're there to unjudge you and unjudge yourself. 
and they're there to give you the resources you need to grow and learn how to communicate because nothing is as important as learning how to communicate. There is no example on earth. I, I, I can offer a personal endorsement of um, what Alexander is actually bringing to the table. Cause my, my first experience, oh, please do my, my first experience with you. I don't even know if you really remember. Oh, I remember everything. Um, <laughs> you observed, I, I guess just by like looking at my facial expressions, my mannerisms, the, the way I joked about my, my childhood and whatnot, that there was like some deeply rooted pain and trauma there. Oh, and yeah. you had encouraged me to share with you, like you, you made it really, really obvious that you were a soft place to land and that you were a sympathetic ear and you were not a judgmental person. And I remember unloading on you and I was in tears and you held me. I mean, like for those who don't know, I'm 21 years older than this guy. He was like pretty close to being a kid when we first had this experience and it's stuck with me it's changed my whole approach to interacting with other people i've learned that there is an importance in listening and in reserving judgment on certain things and i remember just feeling validated so much by by your open ear and just when i thought like it, it couldn't get any better you know <laughs> The, the, the conversation took an unexpected curve, you know, because I had shared my stuff with, with, with you, you shared your stuff with me and I immediately felt guilty because your story was so much more dramatic than mine. <laughs> and yeah. And that's a, you, that's a big no, no, no. And, and the thing is, is like, you immediately went right back to comforting me saying, look, like the worst thing that's happened to you is like the worst thing that you can feel because it's your story. It's not a competition whose trauma is yes. worse. And I learned a couple of things. One is to listen to people whose stories that I think are kind of like bullshit, just because I think my story is like more painful and they don't have the right to hurt. I also learned not to be ashamed to share my story with people that have gone through some bigger things. Like we're all there to support each other, ideally. And yes. all of your education, Alexander aside, I, I think you were uniquely qualified either by design or through your experiences to do what you're choosing to do. And you had said at the top of the episode that people are, will, are, are welcome to reach out to you. And I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, take this guy up on his offer. He's not bullshitting you. He is hands down yeah. one of the sweetest people I've ever had the pleasure of knowing and oh, and not 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 just not just a sweet guy, <laughs> but an insightful, bright and caring guy. Who you know, like if he could get through my tough exterior and start me on a path of softening up, I think he can help anybody. Because I was a real piece of shit before <laughs> I met you. I remember that conversation because <laughs> we were sitting on that stupid, uh, not couch, the uh, the back seat of the van. Yeah, at, at our friend's house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, his couch. Yeah, his his not couch. <laughs> so yeah, that that that's yeah, basically my piece. That. So. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, yeah, and you know what? Just for, just for fun, just for for giggles, is um, mm -hmm. as much as I love helping people and working a full time job and taking care of my children, my services are not always going to be free. 
to those who are able to pay for what I'm what I'm doing. So I you know I try to make my time as available as humanly possible to anybody who needs me whenever they need me, and I don't charge anyone who wants to just have a talk or need some help. You know, I really honestly encourage you to, you know, if you're having a hard time and I can change your day or your life or just this week, shoot me a message. I'm, I'm, you know, I talk a lot on this podcast, but I also know how to shut up and listen. And, uh, you know, if you want to have a chat with me, I am, I'm all ears. So, you know, and I'm not going to charge you. I'm not going to, you know, make you, you know, sign a, a counseling contract with me because I, again, like I said before, I'm not a counselor. I'm becoming a counselor, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. So, and and we'll make sure that we include links to your contact information and any of the resources you've mentioned in this week's show notes as well. Cool. Yeah. Well, Alexander, it was awesome having you on the show. No, thanks. It was awesome to be on the show. And to our listeners, again, uh, as always, like, follow, and share on our social media platforms. You can find us at www.wtbbpod.com and email us at wtbbpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, thanks for listening to When the Bow Breaks Podcast. Podcast.